All right, well, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, and uh, as you do, grab your Bibles, and we're going we're gonna to head on over to 1 Corinthians. This passage is similar to the after-discipline conversation that those of us that are parents have with our kids where you're reminding them of your love for them after you've had to work through some discipline with them. And there's a couple reasons we do that. One is it's important to know that our discipline is out of love, and that's its basis, and that's where it comes from. Um, but the second is that it really love is the only true motivator for behavior change. Fear's only going to take you so far. But unconditional love is really the only true motivator for behavioral change. And that is something we see exemplified by God's relationship with us. And something that we see explained throughout the scriptures in a variety of different ways and through a variety of different passages. And if we just think for a minute about the book of Romans and that letter Paul wrote, there's two different times towards the middle of the book that he asks this rhetorical question, and it's this, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? And he says, no, may it never be. And what happened in that moment that led him to that question was he was placing so much emphasis on the unconditional grace of the Lord demonstrated to us in Jesus. That despite our sinfulness, Christ died for us. And God has done that to us and has extended his grace to us. And it invariably, in emphasizing unconditional love to that degree, it, it begs the question to some degree at or another, well, does it actually matter what I do? And he says, yeah, it, it actually does. Don't presume upon God's grace. Don't think that your sinfulness is just another way to have God dispense all the more grace. No, take his grace and let that be what motivates you. And that's where chapter 6 of Romans leads off and begins. And I think 1 Corinthians 15 is similar in that regard. And it's that post-discipline conversation where here Paul is beginning to tie a bow on the correction that he has written about through 14 chapters, through the whole point and whole focus that he's wanting the Corinthian believers, those in this church, to have. And here he's not so much offering correction anymore as he is beginning to draw a conclusion. And he does so placing the emphasis and directing their attention to the gospel. That message according to the scriptures that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. And where we'll step in next Sunday and beginning through the rest of December in thinking through what he writes is looking at the significance of the resurrection. And there's not really strong indicators in the book that there was false teaching about the resurrection in the midst of this church, there's some subtle hints here and there that maybe there was some misunderstanding about the significance of the resurrection, perhaps more culturally. 
But Paul doesn't take issue with any one person or any group of individuals about their behavior or their teaching the way he has done elsewhere in this book. But as he wraps these things up and draws them to a close and brings a conclusion to this letter that he has written, in which for 14 chapters he has just unendingly provided correction to their misbehavior, he does so by bringing them to a point where he just says, I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you of these things in the midst of the correction that we've had to work through. In the midst of the discipline, which at times was, was pretty severe in his instruction. I want to remind you of God's unconditional love for you. I want to remind you of those truths and let them be what provides this foundation for these changes that I've just outlined that you need to have be a part of your life. And so there's tremendous, tremendous significance in regards to where it finds, this passage finds itself in the letter and what he is indicating this church should place their focus on. We're going to try to unpack some of that and step through some of that here this morning together. So before we go any further, let's pray and we'll continue on. God, we've just come and we ask that you would Give clarity to our minds here this morning. God, help us to, to think. To think with your wisdom. God, help us to understand what it is that you've written. To understand why it was so significant for this church. And why it's still significant for our church. God, help us to see that this, this good news, this gospel message is not just something that we are saved by. But it is that and the very news, the very message, the very good story that we live by. And so God, as we step into Advent here this morning, and as we have just today entered the last month of the year when our focus and attention for the next 24, 25 days is leading up to a morning, God, would you help us to think about this good news. This good news that was announced by angels to shepherds. This good news that was preached by your son. Who you sent because you loved the world so much. This good news that invariably indicates that there was bad news that needed to be understood. And that there was a reason Jesus had to come. And it was my junk was that we did not have a relationship with you. But you loved the world so much that you sent your one and only son. And that whosoever believes in him, in this gospel, 
would not perish but have everlasting life. God, help us to understand that more. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, as we think about just where Paul writes this, I want, I want us to just think briefly this morning I'm on just some of the ways the Corinthian church errored. And as you're, as you're going, we're, our passage is going to break down into three areas, and I'll just give them to you now because they're not going to end up showing on the screen here this morning. And so for those of you that are note takers and those of you that are working to take notes so that you can earn money for camp, here's how this is going to break down. Uh, the first set of verses is going to be a focus on the fact that this is a believer's gospel. So if you were point number one in writing those down, it's a believer's gospel. Point number two is this is a witnessed gospel. And point number three is an empowering gospel. That as we begin 1 Corinthians 15, Paul leads off and says, Now I would remind you, brothers, or brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And we'll unpack verses 1 and 2. There's some challenges there we'll have to navigate. But just as we first focus on where Paul begins, he's addressing brothers and sisters. He's addressing people in the family of God within the church there in Corinth that can be called and are called brothers and sisters because they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I was going to have this on the screen for you, but if you want, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I just want us to read briefly where Paul begins the entire letter. There's a lot of similarity. He doesn't use the exact same words. But the point is similar in that he is addressing believers who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he begins the letter in similar ways as to where now he ends the letter. Go to verse 4. He says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul begins this entire letter that he's going to have some really hard things to say within. By first telling the Corinthians who they are and what God has done in their lives and in their midst as a result of them placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's got some hard things to say, and he'll spend chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through the end of chapter 14, taking issue with their behaviors. But he begins the entire letter by first telling them who they are in Christ. And then he comes on the backside of all of that correction to say, but I, want, I just want to remind you of the gospel. 
and he addresses them as brothers and sisters. I think there's a tendency in our lives and in our thinking to think that the gospel is only for unbelievers. And it is certainly for unbelievers. It is the good news unto salvation. It is the news that you and I have been called to carry to the world in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our school classrooms. That is what we have been commissioned to go and take. But it is not just unbelievers that need the gospel. Because the gospel is a believer's gospel. And I want you to see here on the backside of giving all of these of this correction to the church. That Paul finishes that up and begins to tie a bow on the letter. And working kind of some summary big ideas here at the end. By saying, hey church, in the midst of all the correction, I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you about who you are, and about what Jesus has done. See, it's not just that the gospel is for unbelievers, it is for believers. And in this way, the gospel may be complex, but Paul outlines clearly that it is not complicated. And by complex, I mean the gospel can touch and should touch every area of our lives, but it is not complicated. And so in the beginning of the entire book, Paul addresses the fact that they divided themselves based on style and personality and talent of certain leaders. And he takes issue with that and what they did. And in the midst of and at the end of providing that correction says, but I want you to think about the gospel. The Corinthians wanted a message from Paul. They wanted sermons that would be accepted by the cool kids, quote unquote. Those that were wise in the world's eyes and powerful based on the world's standard and measurement of power and had noble birth or good genes. They just had a good family name. He takes issue with that desire of theirs. He says, look, I just want you to think about the gospel. They were judging the effectiveness of Paul's ministry based on the world's standards. And they were looking for results rather than fruit and faithfulness. And Paul just says, that's not the way to think. Think about the gospel. They missed that they were builders of the body and not just takers. He wants to remind them of the gospel. They allowed and even celebrated perpetually sinful relationships and behaviors to take place. And now I want to remind you of the gospel. They didn't care for others first. They didn't care if they offended one another. They didn't care if they wounded each other spiritually. Perhaps their, their rally cry, as he quotes them saying a few different times, freedom is what we want more than anything. And he wants to remind them of the gospel. That the gospel demands that you act differently at the communion table. The gospel demands that you act differently in the marketplace. The gospel demands that you act differently with one another. That it's not just freedom that you have, it's actually love. 
this thinking of others more highly than yourself because that's at the very heart of the gospel. And so he, in addressing that, then says, I want to remind you of the gospel. What we've just spent the last three months focusing on was them trying to outdo one another and how they demonstrated and used spiritual gifts. There was, a, there was an inherent self-exaltation to the use of their gifts that led some to be just pushed aside as not having gifts worth being used and others being elevated as the ones having the greatest gifts. And he provides instruction and correction and comes on the backside of that and says, now I just want to remind you of the gospel. And this is a believer's gospel. Paul begins the entire book of 1 Corinthians addressing them and what Christ has done in them. And he addresses them as brothers and sisters from beginning to end. And he now in chapter 15 to these brothers and sisters says, I want to remind you of the gospel. Of the good news. You kind of wonder given some of what Paul has walked through the Corinthians with up to this point, if some of them might have taken issue with this statement here. Oh, Paul, we've, we, we've got that figured out. That, w- that was that prayer we prayed back when we were three. We don't need to focus on that anymore. And yet that's exactly what he tells them he wants their focus to be on. I want to remind you of the gospel. And there's a past, present, and future aspect to this believer's gospel. And it shows up in the words that he uses. I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. That word received just means accepted. They heard it. They placed their faith and trust in it. They received it, and the way Paul writes that word is that it's, it's a past tense action. It happened. And he continues, in which you stand. The way Paul writes this word, it's actually a past present tense. The idea of stand here means to be well established. So there was, there was, there was a mark Call it a fence post, if you will. Something got driven down in the ground. They received the gospel. It was a historical moment in their lives. And from there, they're now being well established. There's a past, present, future, or past, present aspect to that. And then he brings in the future aspect and says this, the beginning of verse 2, and by which you are being saved. He writes that word saved in such a way that it gives a present future tense. The word just simply means what we think it means, attaining salvation. It's similar, if not The exact same idea that Paul writes in chapter 1 verse 18. Where in identifying this gospel or there what he calls the word of the cross. He says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. 
See, you and I, as, as those who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we, we have been saved. There's a moment that we can point to. But it is also true to say that we are being saved because we don't yet fully have eternal salvation as has been promised. Paul's saying, look, there's a past aspect to this. There's a present aspect to this, and there is a future aspect to this. And the word of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's power. And I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you of this good news. In the second half of verse Two, Paul gives us and them a, a bit of a, a difficult sentence phrase to unpack and understand. And there he writes, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That word hold fast means to be firmly adhered to convictions. It can mean to keep in one's memory it even has the implication of having actions that follow such a belief. And so Paul's saying, look, it, 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 you're, you're being saved if you hold fast to this message I preached. It's one of the challenging clauses that shows up here and there throughout the New Testament. Challenging in that it seems to indicate that if we don't hold fast, we're not being saved. And I think that's exactly what he's saying. And I think that gets confirmed by his statement, unless you believed in vain. And what Paul is indicating and the words believed in vain, they mean to haphazardly place your trust in. To not have considered everything with clarity. Think with me for a moment about the parable of the sower that Jesus shared. It's in Matthew 13 if you want to turn there. But the story is that there was a sower sowing seed. And he scattered some on the rocky, or I'm sorry, on the path, and nothing happened. The birds just came, and they took the seed, and they took it away. He scattered some seed on the rocky soil, and there was, there was some life that sprang up. He scattered some seed in the thorny soil, and there was some life that sprang up. And he scattered some seed on the good soil, and there was life that sprang up. Well, on the rocky soil and the thorny soil, Jesus indicates that that life will be choked out. And it's the rocky soil that he indicates is just a, a way of understanding just hardships of life. Think through just some of the sacrifices that have to be made when one understands the gospel. Think through just some of the some of the way relationships change. Family dynamics get altered. 
And Jesus says, look, when those things happen and when those trials and those persecutions happen and you just say, forget it, this is not for me. That rocky soil has choked out whatever life there was. The thorny soil, Jesus says, is a way to just kind of understand uh, the, the allure of what the world has to offer. It's the desire to want material things. And Jesus says that chokes out life. But the good soil was the soil that yielded 30, 60, 100 times And I would submit to you that just what Paul is saying here is just in theological words what Jesus shared in that story of the sower. That there is a past, present, future aspect to the gospel. And we're being saved if we hold fast unless we just haphazardly believed in vain. Now, let's think through a little bit further about that, because I don't think in any way, shape, or form, Paul is indicating that this belief comes with perfect, completely sinless actions. Let's just think through what he's done thus far in 1 Corinthians. He's just spent 14 chapters identifying all sorts of areas that they were sinning that they needed to stop. And he says, brothers and sisters, don't forget the gospel. So we're not talking about sinless perfection here. I think what we're talking about is a, a heart's direction. It's not that believers become sinless. It's that those individuals for the first time in their life want to fight sin. Still have moments where we give in. They're a whole lot more frequent than we should want them to be. But there's now this war inside. That war is in fact an indicator of salvation in and of itself as well. And so I don't think Paul here is indicating That salvation can be lost. I think what he's doing is indicating that if there's no desire to heed the gospel. If there's no desire to heed what he's just spent 14 chapters writing about. There's no desire to honor the Lord with our actions and with our words and with our relationships. And to to just lay all things before him and surrender it all to him. That we've got to ask ourselves the question, have we believed haphazardly? has, Has church just become a thing we do because in America it's not really something that requires a whole lot of sacrifice to do. None of us this morning came here under threat of being arrested. None of us came here this morning thinking that we might not go home because somebody might charge in and take our lives as a result of following Jesus. Yet that's the reality for some people around the world. In some ways, we, because of just how 
culturally relevant Christianity is, or let's say it this way, culturally tolerated Christianity is in America. It doesn't take a lot to come here on a Sunday morning. It just takes a little bit of your gas. takes setting the alarm Saturday night before you get up. I mean, our service starts at 10.30. You might actually not have to set an alarm. And if we're not careful, if we don't allow ourselves and the scriptures to ask us some of the hard questions, we may just find ourselves having believed haphazardly. And so if things became hard, we're out. This is not sinless perfection. This is a direction. And Paul tells these believers to not forget the gospel. Because it's not just for unbelievers. It is for believers as well. And in the beginning of chapter 1, he tells them that Jesus will hold them fast. And here in chapter 15, he tells them also to hold fast. There can be tremendous confidence that we can have in our lives regarding where we stand with the Lord. We also need to be careful that confidence isn't misplaced. So what do we do then? That's a really significant question. What do we do with with the people in our lives who we know, or at least I know, who prayed a prayer at some point, however many years ago, but don't have any desire to walk with the Lord today? What do we do there? Here's what I would submit we do there. And it's not any different for those in that scenario as those in the scenario of never having submitted their lives to Jesus. The solution is the same. And the solution is repentance. Whether it's for the first time, whether it's for the twelfth time, whether it's for the hundredth time, The action step is repentance. Had a lot of these moments in, in, in youth ministry uh, when we would take the teens somewhere and, and you, know, just you could tell the Holy Spirit moved and was working and just tremendous, tremendous impact in the lives of the students and they're, they're, they're broken for their sin and they rededicate their lives to Christ and um, and there was one particular night when there was a girl in our youth group who had already been baptized. And that night said, I, I just got saved. Like, well, what do we do with that? And like, she's, she's family's well established in the church. And um, so just trying to think through how to process that and help their parents process that. And, and, and here's just kind of where I ended up landing that we need to always be those who celebrate repentance. And for this girl, whether she had prayed a prayer when she was four, 
and somehow then today when she was 13, had this moment. I, I, I'm not sure if we got to figure out when she was actually saved. As much as celebrating repentance. And celebrating where she is right now. As a young lady who was broken for her sin. Who's surrendering her life to Jesus. And there's even been, been points in, in time where I, I've, seen, I've seen people want to try to talk their child out of that moment where God's doing something as a teenager. Because they want to tell them, well, no, you prayed a prayer when you were three. You prayed a prayer when you were four. You pray. And the, the, we completely miss the fact that God's working something now. So just as we think through and eternal security and, and all of these things, I mean, Paul gives a pretty, pretty significant condition here. Now, he writes this phrase in such a way that he fully anticipates every one of these Corinthians to indeed hold fast. There's actually three different ways conditional phrases can be written in the Greek language, and this is the way a conditional phrase is written that the assumption is, you will. The assumption is, this is true. But I, I think rather than getting ourselves caught up as we think through those who might have prayed a prayer a long time ago, but you know, are they saved now, are they not saved now, what a, I think in, trying, in not getting caught up in those details, where we need to put the focus on is the celebration of repentance today or the pleading for repentance today. Are you living in step with the gospel? Or are you in rejection to it? On the backside of providing the better part of 14 chapters of correction for behavior, Paul addresses these believers and just says, I want to remind you of the gospel. It's not something that you believe at one point in time and move on from. It is something that you believe at one point in time and that affects every aspect of every part of your day for the rest of your days. This gospel is a believer's gospel. It is also a witnessed gospel. And there in verse 3, Paul continues, I delivered to you as first importance of what was the most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This gospel is a witnessed gospel, and it is witnessed both by the scriptures and by those whom Jesus appeared to. The very 
reality and the very actions that Christ went through, that he died for our sins, that he was buried and that he was raised and that then he raised again and appeared. Those very actions were according to the scriptures. This gospel is a witnessed gospel and the first witness that Paul brings to the witness stand to testify is the scriptures. In two different times he uses the phrase according to the scriptures. Every year I love just thinking about the, the probability of Jesus fulfilling prophecies. And I think for every Christmas we've been here, which is our sixth now, I, I think I've shared this with you. It's just almost too good to not do it every year. Um, but the probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies from the Old Testament. Now given there's 300 of them, over 300 of them, but the probability of one man fulfilling eight prophecies in himself that were made from the Old Testament would be one to the power of 18. It's one times 10 with 17 zeros following it. Now that means nothing to those of us that aren't math brainiacs, which I am not. So here's how I think through those probabilities. It would be as if you took the state of Texas, covered it with silver dollars two feet deep, Just try to get your minds wrapped around that for a moment. The state of Texas covered two feet deep with silver dollars everywhere. One of those silver dollars has been marked. Somebody defaced some currency and they drew. The probability that you go down to the state of Texas and pick with one shot the marked Silver dollar is this probability of eight prophecies being fulfilled. Now, here's the really crazy part. To even get that many silver dollars, we would have to take all of the money currently in circulation in the United States and multiply that by 700,000. We're just going to make the national debt balloon up a little bit so that we can test this theory. That's just eight prophecies. I'll give you one more. The probability of 48 prophecies being fulfilled is 1 times 10 with 157 zeros after it. And that is a word that I am just not even going to try and pronounce. But mathematicians have said that even get your minds wrapped around this one, you would have to essentially take Every electron in the known and hypothesized universe and pick the right one. Just, I mean, it just, it's just kind of mind-blowing. I mean, NASA just a couple weeks ago released this black hole that they said shouldn't even exist. I mean, we're still just scratching the surface of what exists in the known universe Jesus fulfilled over 300 different prophecies that were made about his life and his death and his resurrection. 
the first witness that Paul brings to the stand to say that this gospel is a witnessed gospel is the scriptures. It's a witnessed gospel from the Old Testament. The odds of one man fulfilling all of the prophecies are astronomical. But he also brings to the witness stand people. And he lists a whole group of people. Peter, the twelve, more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. James, that would be Jesus' half-brother. The other apostles, probably just authorized messengers. And then Paul himself. And I think one of the implications here in that list that Paul gives, especially in the the listing where he, he gives 500 people, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, is he's just telling the Corinthians, just go ask somebody. Go investigate it. And the New Testament does this for us a couple different times. It does so around the birth narratives where Matthew and Luke tell us about the beginning of Jesus' life. And they, they place the story of Jesus' life in the context of this ruler was ruling in this city. And again, the implication there is that you can just go check history. And for you and I who are some 2,000 years removed from being able to go and interview one of these 500 witnesses, I mean, at this point, all have fallen asleep, is that we can, however, check and consult the history books. To that end, there has never been an archaeological dig or study that has contradicted a fact of the older New Testament. And archaeologists are still digging and uncovering and they are finding things that are still confirming the truthfulness. In fact, they're confirming things that lead them to go back to the scriptures to actually find the accounts of what happened in history. Because they find artifacts that bear the names and dates that are in line with what the, the Old Testament gives. They don't find anything else and so they return back to those historical books, and they say, oh, well, maybe this is what happened. The first witness that Paul brings to the stand in defending the gospel is the scriptures. The second witness he brings to the stand is the group of people that saw Jesus. This gospel is also an empowering gospel, And here in verses 9, 10, and 11, we'll double up 9, but especially 10 and 11, Paul gives us a little bit of insight into his own world, into his own life and ministry. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I don't know if you know people who think that they've, they've gone too far. They've sinned too much. Somehow they're out of God's reach. They're unworthy of His love and forgiveness. I think Paul was a man that understood 
both sides of that coin. Indicating that he was unworthy because of his persecution of the church. But yet overwhelmed that God would demonstrate his grace to him. And in verse 10 he continues, The grace, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. It wasn't empty. It didn't, didn't just go to nothing. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Paul wants this group of believers who he has spent significant time providing correction to to understand that we don't ever move on from the gospel. It's not just what saves us. It is also what sustains us. And it is the only thing that provides any real foundation for life change. Because in the gospel, we understand that it's not by our good stuff that God is pleased with us. It's by his grace alone. And there's no amount of bad stuff that we bring to the table that is going to lead God to push back and say, "Uh uh-uh, I didn't know about some of those things. He knows it all. He knows every bit of the Corinthians' junk. He knows every bit of our junk. And it's this gospel that we're not ever to move from. It's this gospel that we're to be well established in. And it's this gospel that provides us the only foundation for growth. So I just want to ask you and us this morning... I mean, is this enough? We've been asking ourselves for the whole past year, are we going to err in the way the Corinthians erred? Are we going to take Paul's exhortation and his correction and his instruction and walk in obedience to that? And again, just this morning, is this gospel message enough? There was an old hymn, the chorus says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Is that true? Is it enough? The Corinthians found themselves all goofed up. Because it wasn't enough. They had to have spectacular gifts. They had to have this, that, and the other thing. They had to have a message that would be accepted by the cool kids. They had to have, they had to have growing budgets and greater attendance figures. And they had to have all these things. And Paul gives them correction on every one of the things. And then just says, gosh, just don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the simplicity of this message that that God became man. And that it was foretold of thousands of years before. 
And Jesus fulfilled the hundreds of prophecies foretold of him. We don't need to complicate this. Just start and end with the gospel. So I just ask that you'd spend time this week thinking and praying about how this month in particular can start and end for you and your family with the gospel. That it's not just sentiment that you look for, that it's actually substance. I hope you take advantage of some of the resources that are available whether it be this Advent resource, or there's a whole host of ones you can find, and a lot of good ones as well. But is this enough? Is Jesus enough? The right answer is yes. The whole lot more difficult answer is to have a life that lives that out. Let's pray. Well, God, we ask that you would help us to do that, that you would help us to live lives that seek to follow you. God, we thank you for the, the, the comfort that it is that this church in Corinth had, had all sorts of problems, and yet you begin this letter through the Apostle Paul leading and prompting and inspiring him to, to write about who they were and just your, your tremendous promises to complete the good work that you have begun. And then you, you begin to lead and inspire Paul to summarize this letter by reminding them that they are brothers and sisters and they're not to forget this gospel. God, help us to be those who don't forget this gospel. That we may follow Jesus. And so God, we cast our minds to Calvary even now. We thank you for what he has done for us.